Welcome to the Trinity Western University Chapel podcast. It is our prayer that these chapel talks would bless your heart and they would draw you closer to our Lord. We offer them to the glory of God and for the good of the world. Good morning, everybody. School, school year started off well? That's what I like to hear. Some moans and groans in the background, but uh, I like the cheers. Let me just begin by saying, in the midst of your busyness and the beginning of a school year, you have chosen a good thing to be here this morning. Not because of me, but because of God. And you are an encouragement to me to see you here. Let's jump into Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6. By faith, when Enoch was taken from this life, so that he did not experience death, he could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Some quick observations. Enoch doesn't die because he pleased God. And he pleased God because he was faithful. This morning I want to answer the question, what is a faith that pleases God? I want to talk a little sociology, a little anthropology, and a little theology. And we're going to bring them all together and hopefully in a way that makes uh, an impact on you. But before we get into the ologies, let me first tackle this thorny issue of death. Enoch didn't die. Fascinating when you think about it. Early on in this story of Hebrews 11, early on in the chronology of Genesis. And it's interesting because it's not that far removed from the first promise that God made. And that promise was, if you trust me, if you believe in me, you won't die. It was God's first promise to Adam and Eve. And ironically, the first lie that Satan conveyed to Adam and Eve was just the opposite. You wouldn't die for not believing God. In fact, if you really want to experience life, you need to put God to the side and put yourself in front. And we know the rest of the story. Sin and death then enter the world because they knew better. I want you to imagine for a second, to give this a little bit of context to your age group, we talk about these people who lived all these years ago and lived for so long. You've probably heard of Methuselah, the, the man who lived the longest. Well, Methuselah was was Enoch's son. He had Enoch, he had Methuselah when he was 65 years old, lived another 300 years, and then God took him away. But I want you to imagine for a second, if you knew that your father lived to be 75, and you knew somehow in the future that your son lived to be 75, and you found out you only get to live to be 25, you'd probably be a little ticked off. Say, what's the deal here? Or another way to look at it, 
your father lived to 90, your son lives to 90, and you only live to get to be 30. That's exactly the scenario that Enoch experienced. So I want you to imagine what happens if at 25 or at 30, God takes you away from this earth. That's not that far away for most of you. Faith and religion go hand in hand. Let me give you two contrasting explanations of the origin of religion, a way of looking at creation and the creator. One explanation is from a sociologist by the name of Emile Durkheim. Emile Durkheim was a founding um, father of of sociology. Uh, The other explanation is going to come from theologians who talk about theological anthropology, the study of God and the study of humans. Let's see how these uh, two ideas contrast. Let me start with Emile Durkheim, one of the founders of sociology. He wanted to know where people got their concept of, of God and religion. He realized that every, study, uh, every society he studied across time and across space had some form of religion. They valued the sacred. And even though it was defined differently from society to society and culture to culture, the way in which people think about God may be different in one area than it is in another, he was trying to figure out what was the commonality. So in order to understand the, uh, the deeper issues, he set out to study a group of Aboriginal people in Australia, uh, in which he thought represented a pattern more consistent with earlier cultural development. Here's what he found. Stage one, people develop certain traits and values that make them unique. You know, we live in such a multicultural society that you can ride the bus here from Trinity, you can walk on the campus here and you see cultures represented by different clothing, by different languages, by different food preferences. And we forget that down through history, most people lived in very homogenous or similar group types. Everybody looked like them, everybody spoke like them, everybody wore the same clothes as them, everybody believed exactly what they believed. We live in a very uh, diverse society today. But what he looked at, he saw that people develop these certain traits, these different uniquenesses. In stage two, the group would come up with an animal that defines the traits and values of this group or of this tribe. They see themselves as strong, therefore they are strong as an ox. Or they are wise above beyond the other groups around, so they are wise as an owl. The owl becomes the group's totem. The totem is the animal that the group sees as possessing the traits and characteristics of the group. A more modern adaptation may be, if you're in Gryffindor, it's because you're brave. If you're in Ravenclaw, it's because you're incredibly intelligent. If you're in Hufflepuff, it's because you have exceeding empathy. And if you're in Slytherin, it's because you have ambition beyond belief. Stage three, as observed by Durkheim, is little by little people began to worship the animal that represented the group's traits. Here's where Durkheim pulls his lever on his intellectual trap. Follow the reasoning here. 
If people end up worshiping an animal that is nothing more than the symbolic representation of their own traits and values, as they worship that animal that represents these symbolic traits and values of their own selves, what do they end up worshiping? According to Durkheim then, religion is nothing more than a group of people worshiping themselves. They have, in other words, created God in their own image. Now in contrast to this sociological explanation, we have a theological explanation that tries to understand humanity from a different starting point. The fundamental problem with all non-theological approaches to humanity is that they start with humanity and they work towards God. Theological anthropology does it differently. Let me read a couple quotes from Ray Anderson in his book, Being Human. It is not as though non-theological anthropology errs by starting with humanity in its distortion, and we who wish to write a theological anthropology can avoid this mistake. The problem of a non-theological anthropology, it turns out, is not that the human person is the starting point, but that the human person seeks to have the final word the definitive judgment as to the nature of humanity. Think of the Garden of Eden. Think of the offer that Satan gave to Adam and Eve. While a theological anthropology must begin with humanity itself, it must also take into account that the word of God has come to that humanity and is in the midst of that humanity, however distorted and perverse it may be, revealing the true form of that which is human. This is all kind of academic sounding. What does it mean? It goes on to say, it is then to the humanity of Jesus Christ. And as Holly led us at the beginning in her opening comments and as we sang, it is then to the humanity of Jesus Christ, the one crucified and judged for all humanity, who bore in his own humanity the radical judgment of God, that we turn as the starting point for all theological anthropology. What is this saying? This is saying something very simple. So Durkheim says we start with humanity and we create gods in our own image where Anderson says we start with humanity, but that humanity knows that our existence starts with Jesus Christ, who before the foundations of the world knew who we were. We did not create God, God created us. Same issue that Adam and Eve faced. Same issue humanity faces down through time. Same issue that you and I face every single day. This tension is not new. Some of you may remember Bob Dylan, the uh, American songwriter and, and performer. In 1979, he wrote a very powerful song that was reflective of his conversion, his acceptance of Jesus Christ. It's called, You Gotta Serve Somebody. 
You may be an ambassador to, this is the lyrics, you, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be the socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It's a very powerful, powerful song. But the real fascinating twist of this is a guy by the name of John Lennon, which you may have heard about, who also wrote a song in response to his former idol now, Bob Dylan. He was his idol until he became a Christian. Read the rest of Hebrews 11 and you'll see some of the other sacrifices that people who are faithful to God will experience. And John Lennon wrote another song, and guess what he entitled it? Serve Yourself. Serve Yourself. He wrote it in 1979. You do the chronology on how long John Lennon lived after that. Let's come back to Enoch as we conclude. We're told that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Why? Well, you cannot be in a relationship with God unless you believe he exists. Two, if you believe he exists, then you are able to know his plans and desires and his cares for you and that he delivers on his promises when you follow him. As a result, point three, you have to be all in with God. He is creator and you and I are his creation. The rest of the chapter is all about people who are all in. I've got like 15 seconds, so let me read this really quick. Who through faith conquered kingdoms? This is a summary of all the people that you're going to be learning about in this series. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised? Who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. Some were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated, but always, always faithful to the knowledge of who they were in relationship to Jesus Christ. So what is a faith that pleases God? A faith that believes God is creator and we are his creation a faith that, believe is, that believes he is Lord and he knows all of our lives and has our best interest in mind. A faith that believes it is worth being all in, not on the fence, not with a toe in the shallow end, but all in to the point in which you're willing to live a life and suffer those difficulties. And finally, what is a faith that pleases God? It's a faith that believes the time to be faithful is now because you never know when God is going to take you. Thank you.